G'day beer lovers, I'm Pete Mitchum and thanks to our good friends at Bintani, this is a special edition of Beer is a Conversation. Now, as part of the 2019 Northern Hemisphere Hop Harvest, Matt Kierkegaard and I hitched a ride with the crew from Bintani as they travelled to the US to make their final selections from the autumn crops. We headed north from Portland, Oregon, into the Yakima Valley in Washington State, just after the completion of the harvest, and we're granted a rare insight into the wonderful world of hop breeding and development, and the process by which the harvested fresh hops are assessed and then selected before processing. The first stop is CLS Farms in Moxie in the Yakima Valley. The Demeray family has been farming the land here for five generations, and while they produce some of the state's best cherries, apricots, peaches, and plums, it is the hop production for which they are rightly renowned. Eric Demeray, in this wide-ranging chat, takes us through the farm's history and his family's connection to the land, as well as the ways in which they've made the business more sustainable as both a farm and as an employer through a progressive agronomic approach, cutting-edge harvesting facilities and processing. Those among our listeners who are brewers, from the veteran right down to the budding brewer, should find this conversation of interest in terms of how it illustrates a, a shift in thinking about hop usage, where once brewers thought in terms of just a particular varietal to achieve certain flavours and aromas, they can now look at the flavours themselves and select the same hop grown on different lots or picked at different times to achieve different results. We are introduced to Zappa, the latest proprietary hop to come from CLS Farms, and uh, which joins Eldorado and Medusa in the CLS hop family. CLS is also a great supporter of the public breeding program. Intani provides a wide and varied range of products to assure that brewers can make the best beers for you to enjoy, and we thank them for helping us to bring you stories like this one as well. Enjoy the conversation. Eric Demaray, welcome to Beer is a Conversation. Yep, glad to be here. Tell us where here is. So we're in the Moxie Valley, which is a part of the part of a sub-growing district of the Yakima Valley, and um, so Moxie is where uh, it's it's where our our family just uh, got here in the early 1900s and started farming hops. So we're a fourth generation uh, farm, soon to be soon to be fifth. <laughs> I get the feeling that that's almost newcomers around here. Or is, is is are you established as a fourth generation farmer? You're seen as old. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, at least for here it is. There was a there was a group of French Canadian families that got here from Quebec um, in northern Minnesota in the early 1900s. They tried a few different products, a few different egg commodities, and and finally launched onto hops as being. Um, being something that would that would work here so so they got here and i'm I'm a product i'm a i'm a fourth generation product of that i have uh three daughters and and good bet one of them one or a couple of them will end up back here as well looping in your veins as they say (laughs) exactly (laughs) now i understand that um whilst hops are booming at the moment in 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 the 80s and 90s things were a little bit tough around here a lot of families got out of it How, how did your family go through that period yeah, it was yeah, kind of. If you kind of start in the '80s, there was a there was a major uh, there was a major boom in 1980, and then um, it kind of uh, it it the hop industry is just normally in a boom bust type of type of cycle. So, you know, demand kind of globally was declining because beer styles were moving lighter, and um, the advancement in higher yielding and higher alpha hops was actually was was resulting in lower demand even though beer uh, output was increasing globally hop demand was actually decreasing and so really from from kind of the mid 70s on that phenomenon dominated the hop industry 
And so, so at that time, through all this kind of the 80s, 90s, mid-2000s, that period was really a declining demand environment followed with periodic booms when the supply would get pushed too far down. So the, the booms are always short-lived, and then the, the, the troughs were, were deep and long. So, you know, our family suffered along with a lot of other families, and I think, I think from 1980 until kind of maybe 2005, 2006, there was probably, you know, probably 60 to 70 percent of the growers exited the industry so we were able to we were able to hold on through that period and uh barely <laughs> and so we we got to 07 and 08 and craft still wasn't really craft was a little bit of a thing but not much of a thing by then even in you know there was an alpha boom a, sh- a shortage that got created and so um that shortage that shortage gave a temporary boost to the to the U.S. hop industry, so you know that helped. And then what happened was uh, later on in you know about 2012 was when was when craft really started to kind of take off in the U.S. And so we saw that trend and and kind of got on that trend a little bit earlier than others, possibly in the growing region. And so then craft really took off, you know, 13, 14. There definitely was a fast growing in 2015, 16 in the U.S. And so it just started consuming acres after acres after acres. Um, we probably got a little bit long in the last 17 and 18 with acreage a little bit. And U.S. craft kind of dipped down. But global craft now, you know, countries like Australia, mm-hmm. Brazil, um, northern europe is started definitely taking off again so we've kind of been fortunate that we had kind of an 07 08 alpha boom that really had nothing to do with craft you know 2012 13 14 15 was definitely the launch of u.s craft and i would say kind of 2019 20 these years is kind of a launch of international craft so we've been able to string together uh three kind of you know peaks and then the troughs, there's been a couple of troughs in there, but they're really shallow and mm-hmm. really, really short. So the U.S. hop industry was woefully undercapitalized. You know, the equipment and the people uh, were worn out and tired. And so there's been a couple of things, a lot of reinvestment done in equipment here um, across the survivor base, I guess, of, of who's left. And then um, a lot of youth has flowed back into the U.S. hop industry. And so, um, that, those two things, those two things are really important. So Eric, when you say 2012, 2013, you, CLS was well positioned to sort of, mm-hmm. I guess, take advantage mm-hmm. of, of the, that boom in craft. Was that due to having dozens of different varieties or just lots of a few varieties that were particularly Yeah, what well, really launched successful. us, you know, what launched us in, big into that space was was actually the variety centennial and so you know and so how we got to there we, you know in 2007 and 8 we planted the 80 percent of our farm was alpha was ctz's alpha and predictably after that boom in 2010 and 11 the uh the the there was just a glut of it so the the buyer that we had it sold to one of the, one of the large u.s hop dealers 
uh, would, you know, asked us if we could transition out, do a buyout, do something. And we essentially took the vast majority of that acreage and flipped it and turned it into Centennial in one year. So we kind of, we went from being a small acreage Centennial grower to being one of the largest Centennial growers in one year. And so kind of, you know, we got there and we definitely knew craft was going. We knew that, you know, and at that time Centennial was one of the hotter varieties in that space. Um, and, and we had launched Eldorado in 2010, 2011. And then, so we had some of that. So really the centennial conversion out of alpha got us launched off uh, on that space pretty, pretty, pretty quickly. And so we, you know, we just, I've been, I'm old enough to have been through three or four of these cycles and you're just better off to get ahead of the cycle than to wait till the end of the cycle. So I just, pulled the ripcord and we just converted this farm like in one year and how hard is passed. it to do that though it, it because hops do take a little bit of time to establish and it's a two or three year establishment phase for for any new hop variety isn't it yeah the well in the u.s we have specifically in the yakima valley we have the advantage of being able to convert that acreage in one year and right. achieve a baby crop or achieve a an actual yield the first the first year why is that what what, what is it about yakima so you know yakima kind of climate wise and geography wise if you if you look at it we're essentially a desert mm. a very far north desert and so there's really very few other places like this in the world and there certainly isn't anywhere like this in the united states and so when you combine the long day length of being far north with the desert aspect of it then all of a sudden that's what gives us the ability to and it's a huge advantage it's a huge advantage for this growing region in the world that we're able to plant the first year and achieve a crop the first year so because that was one of the things that struck me when i was reading about the um yakima valley is that the hop growing regions in australia we've got down in tasmania around about bushy park it's all river flat so it's mm-hmm. down on the fairly low base of the um on, on the side of the river up here you literally are a desert it's a high plains it's, desert yes vastly different yep exactly and so so then we're lucky we have this kind of curtain of Cascade Mountain, Cascade Mountain Range. And so it, it, it's just like a big, uh, it just, it's like a big capturing mechanism for, for water and snow. So, the, the, so it's, we have these really stable water supplies here that are just every year they're there. And so, you know, with some slight variations, we don't, sometimes we'll have an occasional drought, but but typically the droughts are mitigated pretty substantially by the reservoir system. So there's just this perfect situation in this valley that creates the ability to, to, you know, to be the global leader in hop production. So, Eric, would you say, are you a, a farmer who enjoys beer or are you a, a beer lover who happens to enjoy farming? <laughs> and the reason I ask that is how do you know, like you just made it sound very simple that I oh, will just, we turned over to Centennial. Mm-hmm. Do you work in conjunction either with uh, brewers or um, like, how do you know? Uh, yeah, what, I would say, what hops you know, are going to be popular? I mean, it's been, it's been transformative the last five years, you know, up until probably 2000. 13, 14 or so, you know, we didn't have a lot of back, uh, information from the brewers. It was mostly macro brewers, you know, actually, Anheuser Busch was a pretty, was a pretty good player in the U S hop industry because they bought hops direct. So we'd get a lot of information from them. But once, once they sold the inner 
Interbrew and they became ABI. They they changed their model a little bit. Still really good actor, but they just they just changed their model of how they're buying a little bit, and we lost a little bit of that brewer connection. But certainly never had you know much connection with craft brewers, and so you know we just had to you know we didn't have a lot of information. What's really changed dramatically in the last five or six years is that there's just a huge amount of um, you know brewers that actually descend down on at to the, the grower level, and so it's easy the ability for us now to communicate um, more effectively with brewers is enhanced much, much more. So is that, are you, re, I guess, responding to where they think the trends are going or are you offering products that perhaps then create? I think we're doing a little bit of both. I mean, I think we definitely use the information that we get from brewers, you know, at the end, by the end of harvest now, we've got a really good, Feel. And, and it's and I and in addition to brewers, I'd say there's been a proliferation of mid-sized hop dealers around the world, and so that 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 who are much more open to working closely in conjunction with us, and so so between between those two things, you know, typically by the end of harvest every year, we've got a feeling and a flavor of what brewers are wanting and where they're going, and. And then, so we use that information to modify our future plans a little bit as we see. And then we also have things we're pushing to, or, you know, we're, we're, you know, we're promoting or, or things that we're wanting to do. So, so it's a little bit of both. It's a little bit of both. So, you know, typically here we really respond kind of our, our, our thing is, is we respond to what the buyers, what the buyers really want. And so, you know, we and buyers want, you know, they want diversity. They want new, new varieties. They want, they want, they want access. They want public varieties. They, you know, they want, they want to support that side too. So, so we, we work really hard to support what buy, what the buyers, what the people who are buying our product, whether it's a dealer or a brewer wants. But it's one of the great challenges we've, I guess, during that period when hops were doing it tough uh, in, in, in Yakima and indeed around the world. It was at the at peak mainstream beer um, when it was about um, easy to access alpha. Mm-hmm. It wasn't about flavour. It was just a, the, the mm-hmm. bitterness in beer, um, and that created not only you know, effects on the, the the hop growers, but it also created an impression amongst beer drinkers that beer is just an industrial product. That it is something that just comes in a can or a bottle, mm-hmm. and you don't think too much about the agriculture behind it. Craft beer has really taught us that, but at the same time, I would imagine that it, the rise of craft beer is putting unprecedented demands on you in terms of scaling, and we are in a boom, and how mm-hmm. much will that boom go, and yep. how much do you invest in it? How, how hard is it to, to manage those challenges of a prolonged, sustained boom? Yeah, I, I you know, we're... We're we're towards the end of hop harvest here, so that's when those challenges, you know, show them show themselves as <laughs> show themselves. So it is, Hell. it is, it is. Um, you know, there there are we have built lots of deep, meaningful relationships with lots of people, and their desire and demand, you know, of our products is high, and so um, trying to marry that with the investment and the capital required to keep up with that is, can be a tough juggling act. Cause you know, nobody likes to say no, you know, older, I don't know if I'm older, but I'm, I'm old enough, you know, my generation of hop growers, you know, there's still a little bit of 
post-traumatic stress disorder, you know, like, like the boom is going to go away, you know, and so but that's you, experience, isn't it? Because yeah. Yeah. And so you want to, you want to capture it, you know, and you want to capture it and you don't like saying no. And, and, uh, so, so that, you know, there's, there's definitely, there's, there's challenges both ways. There is, there is extreme challenges trying to keep up right now, you know, especially in our space. Are, are there young entrants into the industry that perhaps don't have your experience that you think are making strategic decisions with because they don't have that understanding of the cycles and they just think it'll go on forever? Yeah, I, I would say that there are definitely probably, you know, there hasn't been a really hard hop cycle since really 2005 was kind of 2006 was the last you know really good one and there's been a couple shallow ones in between there's been really two just shallow events so there's you know there's a fair amount of um younger uh, entrants into the industry um that that probably have no have no recollection of that you know so there will be definitely a time um there will be a there will be there will be a time for sure so um you know working through those working through those uh could prove hard when they when it shows up for those entrants so you know may a little bit of you know but also on the flip side we might have to modify our behavior a little bit and not be so afraid of the down cycle you know so maybe that's the lasting you know, maybe maybe the younger ones need to be a little more afraid of it, and maybe us older ones need to be a little less afraid of it. <laughs> so, so yeah. it's all about balance, just like a good beer. Yeah, yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, now we wanted to speak specifically about two um, mm-hmm. of the hops that uh, that you grow, and that's El Dorado and Zappa. And mm-hmm. Pete asked before the question about do you respond to brewers' needs or do brewers take the tools that you give them and uh, and go and El Dorado is probably an example of one where brewers have discovered something in that hop that perhaps it wasn't designed for yeah and so what we you know we've we've uh, we've learned there's there's definitely a cycle to new hop varieties and so we've now in hindsight in year eight or nine with El Dorado um, we're learning that cycle a little bit and so you know, typically what happens is there was such a desire and need, and there still is an ongoing desire and need for new and unique hop varieties. And so any new and unique hop variety just right off the bat gets a, gets a, gets a, gets a zinc. A peak straight it. away. Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. yep. 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 And so, and so, uh, that certainly happened with El Dorado and, and then, and then it drifts off into a space where, you know, everybody loves it and they're just, but they're not really sure how to implement it yet. And they don't know the beer styles. Then it kind of goes through this phase of learning what it is. And so, you know, everybody did their one off seasonal on it and had a bunch of fun promotion with it, you know, and eventually it has to migrate into its, into, into year round type beers and, you know, and so, and, and how to use it, how to use it with other varieties, how to use it. And so, um, so we had a, a really good burst of activity with El Dorado, um, up, you know, especially about 13, 14, 15, 16. And then, and then it certainly got long in the tooth a little bit, you know, and, and, and so we, um, which we had to modify some of the plantings and the inventory to get it to balance back out. 
And then all of a sudden, a couple of events happened. The hazy was IPA phenomenon was certainly, it fits right into that style. So it definitely, it definitely took right off from there. And then I think brewers really learned how to use it in conjunction with other varieties. What we constantly hear about El Dorado is it enhances and draws out really good characteristics of other varieties. It's certainly capable of staying on its own. There's, um, you know, Stone Delicious IPAs, and a great example, Stone's number one variety, uh, fastest growing beer right now. You know, El Dorado is the primary dry hop in that. So it certainly has that capability, but kind of the hazy IPA and then its ability to, you know, play well with others, that's a term we hear a lot with El Dorado. And so now the demand increase has been something of an order of magnitude that we could not have anticipated. And so we, you know, we kind of roughly think the demand has maybe tripled in the last 18 months, which, um, which we knew, we knew it was coming. I mean, we could see it to a degree, but to this level, I don't think we, I think, I don't think we understood it. So what we can see with a variety is it takes, it gets released about eight year eight or nine after it's gone through its trials and tribulations uh then it starts finding it's if it's a real deal variety with the right of own profile and brings the right things to beer then it then it takes off so and we see that with other other proprietary varieties from other from other from other people as well and eric you touch on something really interesting there in the description of el dorado in terms of you know working and playing well with others but also you you touched on i think you uh, flavor enhancer mm-hmm. and it's a bit, i think the third um, instance of a, a hop variety that sort of has a you know a, an unofficial nickname of MSG mm-hmm. because it's kind of you know it, it it can have that effect. What's the I guess the 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 genetics or the DNA? What's the science behind how a hop can actually? Yeah, that's probably getting a little bit outside <laughs> my bandwidth. But what we can say is it does seem um, like varieties that have the Somewhere in the Neo-Mexicanus strain of things, somewhere and it's not too distant background, seems... We, we seem, might need to step back and yeah. talk about the because yeah. that whole Neo-Mexicanus, because hops, the, the, the easy story of beer is that beer originated in mm-hmm. Europe, hops were first used there, and so there's this idea that hops are a European plant that has mm-hmm. cultivated the world. Tell us about the Neo-Mexicanus yeah, strain. So... so there's there's several different variants of 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 hops and and some of them are native to different parts of the world i think there's five or six of them you know and there's one strain that's uh biologically is referred to as humulus lupulus neomexicanus and so it's its home range is basically from northern mexico up through colorado up even into the northern parts of utah southern parts of idaho and so um there's another one that's a little bit further north up here that goes up into Canada. And so um, most, of the, most of the varieties that brewers are using do have some Neo-Mexicanus in their background. But, but d- depending on the variety, it, it can be quite a bit um, in its history. And so in the early 1900s, there was a researcher in the UK that crossed uh, the noble european varieties which are classified as humulus lupulus lupulus with some neo-mexicanus here and and so a lot of the varieties that brewers are using have some kind of historical way back 
you know, in their lineage, um, Neo-Mexicanus in it. But it appears to us that anything with more recent um, lineage or, or stuff that's 100% seems to have some unique properties that uh, brewers weren't exposed to previously. And so it's, it's kind of our belief system. What happened is, is when they first started crossing the Neo-Mexicanus, anything that exhibited the Neo-Mexicanus base aromas uh, got deselected away. And anything because they're because they're what they were trying to do is just create replicas of European aroma varieties, and so so we think a lot of those got deselected away. So, anyway, it just appears that anything with Neo Mexicanus, um, not too far in its background, seems to be getting traction right now. So, I suspect there's something in that aroma profile of them that is causing causing some of this. How does that work in an agronomic sense? Um, do, do they, given that they originate much further south, does mm-hmm. it take some time for them to get used to the day length and the the, the yeah? The so they so so most of them on the Neo Mexicana side evolved into a evolved in a short day length situation because we're much longer day length. So when we did move them up here, there was uh, there is. There is definitely a, um, some agronomic challenges by moving them up here, and so uh, they do seem to have slowly adapted. But we we filtered through multiple different varieties, and some won't work at all up here, and some and some will work to a decent degree. And so, you know, probably, you know, you know, there whether this will happen anytime soon or not, I doubt it. But but you know, would it they needed they needed commercial hop growers to 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 get some energy behind them but all the commercial hop growers are up here if if a commercial hop grower opened like a satellite farm down in Colorado they probably would thrive a little bit better down there so but those are those are those are things way down the line for now you know our goal was just to get exposure the brewing community exposure to it you know and the brewing community needs it needs new and unique varieties and churn and and those kind of things and so talking of unique mm. just looking at the spec sheet for zappa um even the photo looks yeah it it, it kind of looks a little bit out there it's, it's kind of like a punk completely different and i would imagine that that would give them uh, in terms of um the farm side of things yes different protection or susceptibility to cold winds or hot days yeah it does yeah no they definitely they're definitely what we would classify as a labor of love (laughs) (laughs) so so they're you know we're learning we're learning they're dwarfing they're all dwarfing most of the neo-mexicanus varieties are dwarfing so they create they create some challenges there they don't they don't get all the way to the top of the of the trellis system um but they also have a really high um, they have a high, what we would call cone to leaf ratio. So lot, tons of cones, but not very many leaves. Okay. Um, you know, they, they do struggle a little bit with the day length. They get kind of confused, you know, so the day length triggers, uh, vegetative cycles and reproductive cycles. And when that vegetative versus reproductive cycle gets, gets out of whack, it, it creates, um, creates some, some divert, some, some interesting situations. So there is definitely a range of um, unique things about it. You know, moving forward, what I do know is out of the U.S. that there is a renewed focus on it. And so 
I think there will be, uh, I suspect in many of the breeding programs, there's, there's a, a heavy look at Neomexicanus and trying to, trying to find uh, crosses with traditional varieties that can, that can maybe impart some of these uh, uh, aroma traits and maybe give it a little bit more agronomic, you know, oomph. So, but, you know, in the, in the short run, it was our goal to, these are 100, you know, Zappa is 100%. And, you know, despite all its flaws and everything, we just thought it was important to get it out to, to brewers. So, and, and look, when I read the aroma profile of El Dorado, which is the hop that plays with, mm-hmm. plays nicely, bright tropical fruit flavors and aromas of pear, watermelon, stone fruit, pretty much straight yep. up and down. Yep. When we come to Zappa, um, passion fruit, mint, impulsive. Yeah, I've never heard <laughs> impulsive used as a, a talk, talk to us a little bit. Yeah. About that. So like last last year, we last harvest, you know, we, we get a we get a lot of people through here. So, you know, we were trying to come up with how to describe the aroma characteristics of Zappa. And the the aroma characteristics of Zappa are very difficult to describe. And so, you know, we we took a whole range. We'd ask everybody their opinion and we just listened and and. And, and so we generated some of those descriptors off of that. Um, and so another, a, a funny one we get, I don't think we included it on there, was purple. Purple, no, no, yeah, that was it on there. Yeah, there it is, purple, there it is. Yeah. purple. yeah, okay. <laughs> you know, purple, we didn't even, but like two people or two or three people said purple. And so we were, we were, we, you know, I don't quite know what that means, but I kind of get it a little bit. Scott you know? Purple is like from... a more complex color. Yeah. yeah. You know, maybe. There's yeah. a, a brewer in Australia, um, Scott Hargrave, who sees flavor in, in terms of in color. Colors. Yeah, okay. And that's reflected in he their, in their well, core range. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. I, I guess maybe it's, and for yeah. him, it's IPA was, was purple. So like the, that, all those boxes to tick for a, yeah. a good IPA, yeah. he, see, he sees purple. Yeah. So is, is that for making its way into any beers at the moment? Are, are there any notable beers that we um, should look out for? It, you know, it's in, I would say it's in that, in that definite, like, you know, it's something unique. We're going to churn a, a one-off, you know, out of it, a seasonal kind of thing. So it's definitely in that space right now. So, you know... And and so it it's and and the story is so great with it that it's really easy to build a build a build a tap room beer for a small crapper that they can have something unique and have a story and 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 sell and so you know I think it'll be interesting to see with it you know whether it has any legs beyond that you know and and if it just turns into that kind of a hop variety that brewers use to churn and make a story and then they move on that's that's okay with us too and so it's a little bit of the we think we just kind of think that there's going to be more churn in hot varieties now some will stick maybe like el dorado some might churn for a while and then everybody goes yeah you know it was fun and a little bit it, like beer styles yeah, yeah. it just kind of yeah. drifts off i've tried that what's next yeah, yeah. yeah i've tried that and it, you know and so i think the jury's still out a little bit on on that it zappa will have to be priced you know, higher just from an agronomic standpoint, doesn't have the yield structure that other varieties and that always results, you know, and so at the end of the day, I think what'll determine if it, if it keeps going is, is, you know, when you start talking the price points for Zappa that it will need to be, you know, it's going to have to be a variety that brewers really love or, or, or there's going to be, you know, other alternatives that they can move to. So, so, um, but anyway, I mean, I think we've brought, um, 
I think we brought discussion to the Neo-Mexicana space. We're all, there's already other breeding programs that have released varieties and are promoting that they're very closely related to Neo-Mexicanas. So, you know, I think, I think, uh, I think we moved that ball forward. And so we'll, you know, we'll see where it goes. So, and Eric, presumably it's a bit of a, I guess, a, a balancing act or, or a bit of quid pro quo as a farmer versus as a brewer. Cause you've, you've talked about how some of those, um, mm-hmm. specific characteristics will present in a beer. Um, but then I guess also the Neo-Mexicanus mm-hmm. strain, you also want something that I, you know, I want to lean towards something that's disease resistant or, mm-hmm. yep. you know, is a, a better yielder or works well on yep. the, the colder side of the mountain or yes. whatever it might be. Yeah. So, you know, I think, I think how a good way to think of that is if the aroma characteristics of the variety are so special, it depends on the ag- the agronomic, uh, how far you can go down that chain or that, that level is how special its aroma is. If it's really like, so some of the, you know, a variety like Citra, which is one of the world's most popular right now is agronomically not a very stable variety. And, but it's aroma is so special that it can withstand that. And so, so if, a, if you have a, the more stable a variety is agronomically, uh, the more, the, probably the, 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 high, the, the better priced it can be and the more stable it can be. And, and, uh, you know, and that sometimes wins the day, you know, even though it might not be the perfect aroma, but it's stable and priced right. And brewers, you know, so I think brewers need a, a variety of that. I think the Holy grail, the Holy grail of all, you know, in hot breeding is, is to find really high yield, higher alpha, uh, varieties that are really impactful aroma rise. And then that's a variety that in the long run can be really durable for a, for brewers for craft brewers so i think i think i think the i think just because a variety is problematic agronomically doesn't necessarily eliminate it it's just that under that scenario it's it's going to be higher priced and a little bit less stable on the supply side and it's and it's going to have to have that specialness of aroma to be able to take that justify itself to justify yeah. itself yeah, yeah. yeah. Now we have kept you. So the last day, I think the last day of harvest, or the last days, uh, last couple of days, last couple yeah. of days of harvest. Yeah. I know that you're very, very busy. So one last question: Looking at all of the things we've talked about, and looking at speaking to brewers to get your forecasting, where do you see beer styles going at the moment? We've noticed a lot of really good lagers as we've uh, travelled mm-hmm. around to the region. But what, what are you seeing? What are, are you hearing brewers talking about? Yep. So we've the, some of this is just pure speculation so i would not be classified as a beverage analyst so i'm gonna caveat that straight up but <laughs> they're definitely you know there is still a, a high demand for for high abv high you know big a- ipas that has not gone away for sure uh there definitely is there is a lot of brewers uh moving down into these loggers, lower ABV, and and they're having some some success, and so that's definitely a trend as well. So we look at like Firestone Walker with 805. You know that that thing is just dominating in the U.S. right now. You look at you know Founders with all the IPA and and solid gold. So 
but it seems to be a little hit and miss yet still there. Like if you build a good one, it takes off. And but so there definitely is a there definitely is a trend that way as well. Um, I think I think I think that's probably a natural trend. I mean, it was so IPA dominated, and you can only you can only do so much. You know, as a as a beer consumer, you can only drink so much IPA. I mean, it just feels like you have to like moderate that. You know, once in a while. So so I think that's a natural trend. Um, you know, the hazy IPA thing, we kind of thought that was, you know, I kind of suspected that that was maybe just a trend or a fad, you know, but that that appears to not be a trend or a fad. So a little bit of the, you know, I don't know if, like I said, this is, I'm really going out on a limb here, but there definitely does seem to be a desire by people to drink a little bit lower ABV and or maybe even a little bit lower, maybe what I call bittered beer mm. you know and less bittering in it and and so you know session ipas were really looked at hard around here but really in the united states the only session ipa that's taken off is all day ipa there's been lots of false starts in that in that world um it appears to me that um hazies could be you know they're really soft bitterness the abv still up there a little bit so it's it's not, you know, I think a lot of it's a value proposition. You know, you spend $12 for a six-pack and you get a 4% ABV. I think some consumers don't look at that value proposition really great. And so I think uh, I think hazies could be this little bit of, a, you know, ground where, where you get these little bit higher ABVs, softer bitterness, but lots of hop flavor and so it might be around here for it might be sticking that must be music to a hop growers ears. <laughs> yeah. well <laughs> it is it is i don't know if from a brewer's perspective dumping six or seven pounds of hops in a in a beer is completely sustainable but, but Shh, don't tell but, them but they can they can keep trying <laughs> no but i think matt we might also need to just edit out the bit where eric uh, said twelve dollars for a six pack yeah. of, of hazy because <laughs> uh, I, th- I just assumed, but in, in Australia you, you were going to say twelve dollars for a can. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so might, we might that, upset some of our listeners yeah, seem, with your uh, value yeah, proposition. That might, seem, that might be seem cheap, and or, or, or you'll see even more Australians coming over to visit. Visit exactly. <laughs> yeah, and a little bit of the game changer with hazy, I can see, is it's enabling these really tiny, uh, hyper local craft brewers to really kind of compete and with bigger craft you know because they can make those styles and they can pour them in their tap room you know it's really tough to get that style to put into a can ship it do all those kind of things and so it's really enabling kind of this ultra tiny craft brewer segment to to really be able to compete very well so I, I don't know. I don't know if I see it going anywhere for a while. We'll, we'll come back and give you a scorecard on your prognostications uh, in, <laughs> All right. in 12 months' time. Eric Demaray from CLS Hops, uh, yep. thank you very much for yep. a little bit of time and uh, thank you for the great conversation. Great. Thank you guys too. Don't forget, if you like what we do here at Radio Brews News, you can help us out in a number of ways. You can sponsor the show either by a small monthly contribution or through a one-off donation. You'll find details in the show notes. You can also review us on iTunes or whatever your favourite podcasting service happens to be. Let us know what you think and help others find and discover our shows. 
Finally, you can tell us what you think about what's going on in the beer industry by emailing us at producer at brewsnews.com.au. 